This is Rob Kane. I'm on my way to Mars. You're listening to Ancient Rome Refocused, Season 3, Episode 18. On the show today, we have Arthur Phillips, the author of the international bestseller, The Egyptologist. I'll begin a new transmission from the surface. Stay tuned. Oh, boy. Separation commanded, altitude 600 meters, gravity turn, altitude 400 meters, 300 meters, 200 meters, 80 meters, 60 meters, 50 meters, constant velocity, 37 meters, 30 meters, 20 meters, 17 meters, standing by for touchdown. Touchdown confirmed. Let us imagine, at some future date, a new Mars rover named Valkyrie sets down on the Martian surface. You may notice the name is curious for a Mars probe. Other names have included Viking Lander, Mars Observer, Orbiter, and Rover, all names that explain the purpose. Valkyrie was made for other purposes originally designed as a disaster robot to walk into earthquake zones and pull people out of burning buildings. It was named for the handmaidens of Odin, Valkyrie, Chooser of the Slain. Earlier versions were laboratories on wheels arrayed with solar panels and robotic arms for sampling the Martian soil. Valkyrie is a humanoid robot similar to Honda's Asimo. This is no Asimo. It's Asimo on steroids. He even looks it, a muscular version that looks like it can handle itself in a fight. JAXA, Japan's Aerospace Exploration Agency and NASA, through a combined effort, developed the newest form of exploratory AI. His AI level of computation has been rated two levels under the fictional HAL, reference the 1968 fantasy sci-fi movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, huh? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. Valkyrie is no way as scary as Hal. Valkyrie likes to please. There'll be no locking the spaceship door when astronauts come a-knocking. Anyway, Valkyrie is by himself. Mars, fourth planet from the sun. Second smallest planet in the solar system carries the name of the Roman god of war. Iron oxide prevalent on Martian surface. Terrestrial planet, thin atmosphere, impact craters, valleys, deserts, and polar ice caps. November 2016, NASA reported finding large quantities of underground ice in the Utopia Planetia region. The Phoenix lander returned data showing Martian soil to be slightly alkaline and containing elements such as magnesium, sodium, potassium, and chlorine. These nutrients are found in the soils of Earth and are necessary for the existence of life. So far, 
it has walked over 400 miles throughout a designated special region as agreed by the Committee on Space Research. A special region must have a water activity rating of 0.5 to 1.0. The activity is judged on how suitable it is for life. It is also based on the suitability for the production of food. It is based on how warm it is and the possibility for methane to exist in the surrounding atmosphere. Humans firmly believe where there's water, there must be life. Humans do have their prejudices. Valkyrie's eyes contain various cameras, microcortex, microimaging, navcam, engineering, video, and thermal. It spots an entrance into a mountain and sends a message back to Houston. Valkyrie will wait for an answer, but it will not wait long. Mountain Ridge, 400 meters. Cave entrance, 3 feet wide, 5 feet tall. Rock. Laser distance measure indicates recess goes back 2,000 feet. Priority 1 message. NASA, permission to investigate. Message sent, 13 minutes, 48 seconds to reach Houston. Estimated response, 2 days for consideration. Processing shutdown of all unessential systems until Houston instructions received. Power down. Power up. No instructions. Decision protocol. Continue on designated course. Yes, no. Processing. Decision, yes. Mission protocol. To explore. Decision flow. Enter cave? Yes, no. Decision. Processing. Yes. Benefits. Processing. Possible opportunities to record mineral veins not visible at surface. Mission protocol. Search for valuable ore and water deposits. Compose message. Recipient. Mission control. Explore cave. Entrance at longitude latitude. Coordinates. Radio communication. Down for two hours. Will reestablish communication at 1300 hours. Message sent. Engage motor function. took a little effort, but Valkyrie was able to get inside the cave. It turned out to be a lava tube. These underground tunnels made by basaltic, fast-moving lava are much larger than the lava tubes found on Earth due to the difference in gravity. The surface of Mars is extreme, bombarded by ionized radiation. Below the surface is the possibility of life. Volcanic minerals found in lava tubes could provide a source of nutrients to chemosynthetic organisms. This is Martian Biochemistry 101, conversion of carbon-containing molecules and nutrients into organic matter. When you look for life, you start small. Valkyrie was hopeful. Valkyrie was actually able to feel hope. The engineers had bragged that Mars exploration would be conducted one step at a time. This was the motto of NASA. Honda technicians had posted in their engineering labs, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. From Valkyrie's chest, a halogen light lit up the interior. Laser bursts measured the left and right of the width and the elevation of the ceiling. The bottom of the tube was hard, a curved flooring as walking through a vein. The walls were rigid, cooled over the centuries. One time, lava flowed and quickly emptied out. Valkyrie had walked one hour and 52 seconds before it reached an obstacle. An obstacle in a lava tube. A wall blocked his path. It made no sense. Such a geological event could go on for miles. The halogen light lit up the opposite wall, and it was not the wall that Valkyrie found curious. It was what was written on the wall. The robot decided it needed only 60 seconds to record what was there. 
A logic cycle determined that it must send us back to Euston as quickly as possible. Valkyrie turned around and headed back to the surface. We're getting data from the surface of Mark. Hascam sequence is kicked off, waiting for images. Heads up, folks! The number pi is a mathematical constant, defined as the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter. It is used in mathematics and physics, approximately equal to 3.14159. Sometimes called the Archimedes constant, pi is found in formulae in trigonometry and geometry. Of course, it was not an exact replica, but it was close enough, and everyone knows nature does not draw mathematical symbols on the wall of a lava tube. This is Channel 20, beamed to you from Mars on Hypervision. Welcome to the award-winning news magazine, Exhibit 3. And now, here is our contributing correspondent, Rob Kane from Ancient Rome Refocused. Six years ago, an artificial intelligence went dark on Mars. It decided to go exploring. That means all transmissions ceased. Valkyrie went without instructions and made its way 200 feet underground. It was there it discovered a familiar symbol that should be known by every student and teacher alike. That symbol was the number pi. Mathematics is considered an international language. Many now consider it a celestial one, even the language of God. Around us planets sweep in circles and elliptical orbits in a dance of celestial mechanics. The number pi is our common denominator to a people that once lived in our small neighborhood called a solar system. Soon, with continued research, we may find the equivalent of a Rosetta Stone. Until then, from the Red Planet, all we have found are glimpses of this mysterious culture. From an underground city cracked open after thirty millennia, we have peeked into another world. From under the surface of Mars, we have seen technology, clothes, jewelry, images of the day-to-day -day life of a strange and wonderful people. These images have found their way to Earth and have taken our culture by storm. Pins of Martian pie are sold across the Internet. Martian pie is tattooed on women and men, found on thigh and leg. Tongue studs of Martian pie have become the newest craze of body piercings for goth girls and boys across the U.S., Europe, and Asia. What you are listening to is the sound of the stuttering rings. This is the only audible sound waves that we have obtained from the Martian culture. We have no idea if these sounds are information, words, or music. Yet the stuttering rings have become the latest viral hit. Dancing to the stuttering rings have become the newest art form. Japan's annual contest called Shonen Fujisawa Dance Mix had 1,000 dancers performing stuttering rings hip-hop. While Martian music throbbed in the background, the dance number was beamed across the world.
Martian pie cereal, jello, pies and drinks are stacked on grocery store shelves. Martian pie branding is all the rage. Even a new vapor cigarette is sold throughout North America in a red metallic dispenser, while kids blow out red smoke branded as Martian atmosphere. None of it healthy, and none of it good for growing America. Zach Posen, designer for Natalie Portman, Kate Winslet, and the retired Jennifer Lawrence, brings out a line of clothing named Martian Couture, based on excavated material dated to be 30 millennia old, found buried beneath the Martian surface. Jim Skeeter, the rich entrepreneur dying of cancer, who created the holographic cell phone and text, has built himself an 800-foot mausoleum based on a building found in a 1,000-foot cavern harboring the fossilized remains of what is considered to be Martian bodies. Richard Branson, son of Charles Branson, founder of Virgin Airlines, has established the first colony hotels on the Martian surface. Virgin Spaceway has built the first road on Mars for Martian tours, staying in the inflatable habitats at the base of Mount Olympus. Red Mumbai, first free trade Indian city established on the surface of Mars. Celestial Wuhan, first Chinese free trade city established on the surface of Mars. New New York, first American free trade city established on Mars. The first university devoted to Martian studies opened on Mars. Long distance learning sends its student enrollment to a whopping three million students studying for a bachelor level of Martian culture and planetary studies. The student body spreads across 30 countries with offerings and doctorates for those willing to emigrate to the Martian surface. Explorers are still searching for the Mars version of the Rosetta Stone. In the meantime, the family of Ray Bradbury, the 20th century author of the popular book, The Martian Chronicles, has approved his remains to be transferred and buried on Mars. Coverage will be provided here on Exhibit 3. Stay tuned. Martian Mania Hip Hop is listened to across the surface of the earth. Martian mania has only just begun. Long before the start of Martian mania, the world took part in a phenomenon called Egyptomania. It has lasted from Roman to our modern times. And now, here is our contributing correspondent, Rob Kane, from Ancient Rome Refocused. From July 1914 to November 1918, the world experienced a war, considered the deadliest conflict in human history, there were 20 million deaths, almost an equal number of wounded, basically 40 million casualties. It is not a stretch of the imagination that the subject of death was on the minds of the survivors. What could, in the aftermath of such a war, console a people that now lived in survival mode after peeking into hell? What could get their attention? Religion, the gaiety of living the good life, coined the Roaring Twenties, or the discovery of a people that believes so readily in the afterlife that they packed for it like going on vacation. The discovery of the tomb has a connection to the TV show, Downton Abbey, it has nothing to do with the Crawleys, but everything to do with the family that owns the castle where the TV show is filmed. Its real name is High Clear Castle and is owned by George Herbert, the 8th Lord of Carnarvon. His ancestor, 
the fifth Earl of Carnarvon, bankrolled the excavation of the British archaeologist and Egyptologist named Howard Carter. Do you remember the library in the show Downton Abbey, the room with the high windows and the luxurious bookshelf? I like to imagine Carter and Lord Carnarvon sitting there on a rainy day, perusing maps and photos and lists of provisions as raindrops hit the windowsill. It's an ideal supposition, but a guy can dream, and it's not out of the realm of possibility. The tomb of Tutankhamun was discovered on November 4th, 1922. centuries ago. Thirty-three centuries had passed since human feet last trod the floor on which we stood, and yet the signs of recent life were around us. A half-filled bowl of mortar, a blackened lamp, the chips of wood left on the floor by a careless carpenter. We had penetrated two chambers, but when we came to a golden shrine with doors closed and sealed, we realized that we were in the presence of the dead king. We were to witness a spectacle such as no other man in our time had been privileged to see. I carefully cut the cord, removed the precious seal, drew back the bolt, and opened the door. When a second shrine was revealed, even more brilliant in workmanship than the last. With intense excitement, I went forward and unbolted the inner door. They slowly swung open, and there, filling the entire area within, stood an immense yellow quartzite sarcophagus. It effectually barred any further progress until we could raise the lid. Then a decisive moment. None of us but felt the solemnity of the occasion. In a dead silence, the huge lid, weighing over a ton and a quarter, was raised from its bed. Light shone into the sarcophagus. But how disappointing! The contents were completely covered by linen shrouds. But as the last shroud was rolled back, a gasp of wonderment escaped our lips. So gorgeous was the sight that met our eyes. A golden effigy of the young king of magnificent workmanship filled the whole of the interior. This was but the lid of a series of three coffins nested one within the other, enclosing the mortal remains of the young King Tutankhamun. Laid on that golden outer lid was a tiny wreath of flowers, as it pleased us to think the last farewell offering of the widowed girl queen to her husband. Among all that regal splendor, everywhere the glint of gold. There was nothing so beautiful as those few withered flowers 
They told us what a shock period 3,300 years really was. But yesterday and tomorrow. This is not the beginning of Egyptomania. Far from it. If you want to read about Egyptomania, check out the book by Bob Breyer, B-R-I-E-R titled Egyptomania. It is a zany book about how for 3,000 years this ancient culture has made an impression on the world. Egyptomania can be traced back to the Greek historian Herodotus around 450 BC. When he visited the pyramids, the stone monuments were already 2,000 years old. Herodotus speculated on the building of the pyramids. Octavian transported two obelisks back to Rome. He kept Egypt as his personal estate. Hadrian toured throughout Egypt, rebuilding the Serapium of Alexandria, a temple dedicated to the god of Serapis. And when his lover drowned, he had him deified. Antinous Osiris, god of the new cult. Some Romans even built their own pyramids to their own glory. There is the tomb of Gaius Cestius, who gave himself a pyramid for his tomb. It was completed in 333 days and is similar to the tombs of Numidia. Romans living in Alexandria took a mummification for their own afterlife. If you get a chance, check out the mummy portraits on the caskets of the dead. All are depicted in the bloom of life, bejeweled, large-eyed, and in their best finery. These are portraits where you would recognize them on the city street if you saw them. I fell in love with one of these pictures, an ancient Alexandrian beauty displayed at the Field Museum in Chicago. Gone over a couple of millennia, but the woman was still beautiful. What can I say? I was lonely. Jump ahead to Napoleon. The Corsican decides to invade Egypt. He takes with him scientists called the savants, men to calculate fortifications, cannon fire, logistics to support an army in the field. After Napoleon abandons Egypt, his savants are left alone in an historically rich treasure trove. These men, deprived and sunburnt, exercise their intellect in recording the splendors about them. Their thoughts and observations poured into the definitive work called The Description of Egypt. It was a spectacular, academic, aesthetic, and archaeological success. New methods of printing technology had to be invented to show the mind-blowing illustrations. The document, though a financial disaster, the cost of it was beyond the masses, but eventually sections, parts, and reprintings made its way into the consciousness of Europe. Egypt would be romanticized in painting, jewel, and vase. Tea sets and clocks took on Egyptian motif. Even a form of cannibalism and odd misunderstanding of the ancient Egyptians' belief in the afterlife took place. Grounded-up mummies were considered a cure, not a total surprise to Europe where John Donne's love alchemy to Shakespeare's Othello and Edmund Spencer's The Fairy's Queen mentions mummies and fresh remains as a common ingredient to medicine. Mummia balsamita is a cinnamon for elixir. What can I say? At that time, medicine sucked. Finding the tomb of Tutankhamun in the early 20th century came at the beginning of mass media. So it could be called the spark. We were now in the age of the record player and the silent movie. Now Cleopatra, a.k.a. Theta Barra, could be seen in the moving pictures and imagination could run wild. Now, keep the fellows quiet. Tell them not to play. Cause here comes Fatima with her car off on the A. Now go and hide the white rock. Put the food away. Ancient history was no longer in the possession of those in academia. For 27 cents, you could travel in time. Moving pictures and the phonograph are in its infancy. Music heralding ancient Egypt comes in jazz bands. 
dances and gala balls with the wealthy adorned in Egyptian tire, so they may be photographed for the society page. With the birth of mass media came the birth of market advertising. Egypt sells. The public can now buy Egyptian-themed humidors, jewelry, cigarettes, and cigars wrapped in and boxed in palm trees and the immortal Nile. Scared jewelry and tiny mummies hanging on chains about the neck. Even New York attains its own Egyptian obelisk for display in Central Park. And Egypt mania does not end there. It still goes on today. A traveling roadshow for Egypt, an unparalleled and inexhaustible income. In 1977, a King Tut exhibition took place at the Chicago Field Museum. 1.35 million visitors came in from out of town, which was basically a financial windfall for the city. I remember attending, and all I remember are the burial masks and the gold. Every generation wants to gaze upon and breathe the air of the King Tut treasure in the same room. Just do not touch. Carter called it a room of wonderful things, and that room is now in London. It may be the last time it ever travels overseas. You may have to go to Egypt, like Carter, to see it. I'd like to talk seriously just for a moment. One of the great art exhibits ever to tour the United States is the Treasures of Tutankhamun, or King Tut. But I think it's a national disgrace the way we have commercialized it with trinkets and toys, t-shirts and posters. And about three months ago, I was up in the woods and I wrote a song. I tried to use the ancient modalities and melodies. We'd like to do it for you right now. Maybe we can all learn something from this. was a young man, he never thought he'd see people stand in line to see the boy king. How'd you get so funky? Did you do the monkey? The Egyptologist is a book written by the international best-selling author, Arthur Phillips. Our Exhibit 3 contributor, Rob Kane, reviews a book that brings to light the golden age of archaeology and a fictional protagonist that takes you on a dig through his past and the sands of Egypt. Welcome to The Egyptologist. The Egyptologist takes you on an archaeological dig. It is the story of Ralph Trillibush as he searches for the lost tomb of Atum Atu. It's the 1920s, the heyday of the Egyptologists. A new world was being dug up under the sands of Egypt, and academics and archaeologists were spread up and down the Nile in search for the past. The book itself is set up like an expedition. You must dig through letters, journal entries, and diagrams in search for an elusive king of Egypt. But as you search, you're digging up the true identity of Ralph Trillibush. The mystery of Atumatu is lost to history and must be unearthed and layers must be swept aside. As we read, we slowly sweep aside the false narratives of who or what this Ralph Trillibush truly is. In letters to his sweetheart Margaret and assorted journal entries, we think him to be an Egyptologist, a rich man's son, an academic, even a teacher at Harvard. But what is the true nature of Ralph Trillibush. As we read, we peek inside the correspondence, 
of a detective hired to find him, who, through investigation and interviews, sweep aside the false narrative of Trillabush's lies. At the same time, through journal entries, we accompany Trillabush on a search for the Egyptian king. Everyone in the book is digging, dusting away the sands of time to reveal truths, sweeping away falsehoods, secrets under the soil, finding lies and being misdirected. The protagonist's expedition is bargain basement, money tight and empty pocketed as the false archaeologist presses on. A betrayed father-in-law and the demands of investors expect a quick payoff and his funds drain away as his true identity is revealed. Trillabush is digging at the same time as the archaeologist Howard Carter, the discoverer of King Tut's tomb. Carter's discovery would take the world by storm, and soon Trillabush has nothing to finance his dreams other than his own dream of immortality. As the story progresses, we dig. Trillabush digs, a detective digs, and we find that Trillabush has many identities. Should we call him a talented amateur? Should we call him a charlatan? Is he a liar? Is he a dreamer? Phillips does not make it easy for his protagonist, and we, the reader, must go along for the ride. One has to sweep aside the false narratives and dig up the facts. The book has the feeling of a Freudian psychoanalysis where layers are pulled away to reveal what's underneath. Freud believed that he could pull from the unconscious fragments of memory, and he would interpret them to find the truth. This should come to no surprise, for a famous photo of Freud's desk shows it littered with Egyptian and Roman artifacts, miniatures of gods dug up. Philip's book is a good read and adventure. No Indiana Jones here, but a systematic exposure of an ancient king and the dissection of a tragic hero. It is a great novel, as any great novel is like archaeology itself. You may think the title of the book is in reference to Trillabush. It may be so. Trillabush, the Egyptologist. On one hand, the Egyptologist may be the detective who relentlessly pursues his quarry, revealing Trillabush's actual persona, chasing the Egyptologist across the years and across continents. Then again, the Egyptologist may be Arthur Phillips himself, who, like any good novelist, must immerse himself in the material so that the tale is believable and his research holds up under scrutiny. However, in the end, the Egyptologist is you, the reader. Welcome back to the award-winning news magazine, Exhibit 3. How do you write a book about another world? Arthur Phillips and Rob Kane discuss the process and the beginnings of The Egyptologist. Okay, uh, we have on the line Mr. Arthur Phillips, the author of The Egyptologist. Freud at one time considered archaeology for a career, and I think there's a famous photo of his desk where he has every, his entire desk is covered with artifacts. And in you reading your book, I could not help but think of psychotherapy. Well, I, I know that a lot of novelists do feel that writing fiction has, has a psychotherapeutic element. I, I don't think I am one of those people, though. 
Um, I'm much more interested in finding out what I can write about that isn't me, characters that aren't me, people who've done things I haven't done, people who are troubled by things that don't particularly trouble me. And then, as you proceed along those paths for a while, you know, strange connections start to get made, and you start to notice how a theme and a character and a setting all start to intertwine, and you realize that, of course, something is happening in a subconscious level that you are not totally in control of, so that I don't know that it's particularly psychotherapeutic, but I do come to the end of a book like The Egyptologist, and I think to myself, well, I didn't, I don't remember having uh, thoughts or concerns about human immortality or about the legacy that we leave behind us or what happens to you when you turn 35, but I guess I must have because those are so thick within the book. So it's only after the fact that you, at least in my case, I look back and think, I wonder if I had something on my, on my mind after all. Uh, how long did it take you to write the book? About two years and maybe a little more. That seems, when I don't have a day job or something else pressing, that seems to be about what it takes me to write a novel. When do you know that you're done with it? Uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's a lot of things about novel writing that are, that are not cut and dry and definite. Um, it's hard to know when you've started sometimes, uh, and it's hard to know when you've finished, and it's hard to know when you're past the midpoint, and it's hard to know whether you have the structure that you're going to work with. There's a thousand decisions every day, and you take little, little, little tiny baby steps, and occasionally you take a big leap forward. But a lot of times you make some very small things. I think I prefer this to that. I think I prefer this to that. Uh, in the case of these challenges, I had a period of a couple, well, maybe six weeks where I went through, I had been working for a while, and I realized I'm going to have to make some decisions about the structure of it, and I'm going to lose something that I like, no matter what structure I pick. So let's go through the possibilities. And I went through different kinds of ways I could tell the story, ending up where it ends up, which is a mixture of different people's uh, letters and telegrams and journal entries and things like that. Uh, how did I know when it was finished? In the case of the Egyptologist, it was a very peculiar thing, which is the first thing I thought of, my first moment of inspiration for the book ends up being the last two pages of the book. So I thought of the ending first. So I knew that if I could somehow, somehow get to back to that ending, then I was done. So in, that, in the case of the Egyptologist, I, I, I knew I was finished when I had built the whole thing to lead the ending that I wanted, and I had then gone back and revised it you know, several times uh, and felt like I was ready to show it to my editor. You know, I once talked to an author who wrote a book about horseback riding, and uh, I could have sworn she knew everything about horseback riding there was. And uh, and I I said, well, you must have owned an or owned a horse when you were a child, and she did not. In fact, she never had been near a horse. She got all her information. She got all her information from reading, and and so it leads me to ask you. I I was I the. You had me in the grip of your hand, and, and it makes me wonder, uh, have you ever been on a dig? I mean, what is your experiences? Or if you've never been on a dig, what was your source material? Uh, I have never been on a dig. Um, I suspect that I would not be very good at a dig. Um, I'm not uh, able to sit and do the same task over and over and over again, slowly. Um, I was never very good at making models when I was a kid. I'm not, I don't think I'm cut out for a dig, although I would like the idea of, you know, being the guy who breaks the last wall and gets to walk into the tomb full of gold. But besides that, I've spent uh, probably four days in Egypt in back in 1991. Um, so that was very helpful when I started to write the book in 2002. My source material was, was a lot of books which I would only go to when I needed them. I started writing for my imagination, and then I realized, yeah, I, I really don't know anything about uh, ancient Egyptian theology. I better study up. I don't know anything about the history of these dynasties. I don't understand uh, how long this history took. I don't really understand who built the pyramids or even why. I better do some reading. And then I got into much more specific sorts of questions because I needed things like a particular king who never existed to uh, exist in a certain point in Egyptian history, and I needed to, to represent certain things, and how would I possibly get these questions? So that's when you have to go and find an expert. And in my case, it was the British Museum. Um, the British Museum website, which I went to looking for their uh, ancient Near East and, what is it called, their ancient Near East and Nubia department or something like that, they have, you know, the British Museum has this wonderful mandate. They're expected to answer the public's questions, which is probably a perfectly easy job when the public is someone who wanders in and looks at something and asks a question. When it's some maniac writer who starts to email the guy in the Near East department every day for months, 
then I'm probably more of a harassing member of the public. But there was a wonderful Egyptologist at the British Museum named Marcel Marais, M-A-R-E-E, who very patiently answered all of my increasingly loony questions and who actually drew for me uh, the frontispiece of the book, which is the cartouche of my imagined king. So he was kind enough to draw me things in hieroglyphs and explain all of my misconceptions and walk me through how my plot might work and the geography. And So that was a, that was a huge resource. Um, similarly, I got some help from uh, Kent Weeks from the Theban Mapping Project. And after that, it was hitting the libraries and the bookstores. Which uh, character did you create first? Was it the world of Trillabush or, or the world of Atum Adu? It's a great question. I'm trying to remember that. I knew, you know, I, as I said, I started from the back, uh, and I knew that Trillabush was going to be there at the end, um, and how he got there. Uh, I, I'm sure I started with him and trying to imagine a an Egyptologist for whom everything that can possibly go wrong goes wrong. So he, he was my opening. I see. Why did you choose the subject of archaeology? Well, as I mentioned, you know, these decisions aren't as straightforward as you would think. It's, at least in my case, I, it's very rare that I say, I know what I will do now. I will do a book about Egyptian archaeology. Instead, what happens is, you know, Instead, what happens is something somewhat akin to archaeology, which is you get a glimpse, just a glimpse of something. At least I do. And I know something over there is is going to be worth the work and is going to be a treasure. And that glimpse feels, you know, in my case, it's usually I'm walking, I'm usually walking the dogs, and my mind wanders and I start to daydream and I end up having a kind of flash of, well, oh, this would be interesting. What if? And I think everybody probably has those moments, but writers are people who, among other talents, know how to stop and pay attention to those moments of daydream and say, ah, well, what if that happened? And who would be in such a situation? How would they have gotten there? What would happen next? And then you start taking notes. And then, you know, your first little glimpse becomes a list of notes, and then it becomes a list of possible scenes and then settings. And you start to write something based on that first glimpse, and you think, ah, here's the thing that I thought I was going to discover. And then it turns out it's not the main thing at all. It's just uh, an annex, you know, and you open up, it opens up another character, which is like opening up another door in a tomb, and suddenly you have a whole other world that you hadn't thought of, which is there before you, and at the end of it, three years later, you look back on that first little glimpse that you had, and you realize, well, I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen one percent of what I was going to do. I, you know, I went in on, on a hunch on uh, something that ends up being very small compared to what I built or what I discovered, which some people feel like it's that instead. Uh, it does have an archaeological feel to it. So to answer your question, did I set off to write something about Egyptology? I didn't. I had this glimpse of a guy uh, in a particular kind of trouble, which amused me. And, you know, amusing me seems to be where most of these things start. And I thought, well, it's gonna, I'm going to pursue that and see what I can make up, how did I get into that position. And before I knew it, I needed to learn something about Egypt. This is just my impression, but uh, I got the feeling that everybody in the book is obsessed with something. Uh, Trillabush with the past, uh, Margaret with Trillabush, uh, the detective uh, uh, with Trillabush. Uh, uh, it, it, it had an obsessive nature about it. Now, now, what about you? What was your obsession? You know, I suppose everyone has some obsession at some point, and things fade and they come back, and then you find yourself interested in something else. Uh, you know, I tend to be, when I get in deep into a book, I tend to be obsessed with the book I'm writing and with trying to figure out answers to the problems that it presents. How am I going to get these characters to be more believable? How am I going to get this situation to turn more interestingly towards something? Otherwise, my life is very, you know, placid and calm, actually. I tend to write books about people who are deeply engrossed and deeply obsessed with something, but for me, that tends to be just the thing I'm working on. I, my days are filled with, you know, writing and walking the dogs and exercising and hanging out with my family and cooking and Nothing, nothing, too, nothing too obsessive. Okay. With all your research and the availability of all the subject matter experts that you, that you counted on, uh, did you walk away with anything about Egyptian color, culture that you found fascinating? Well, the whole thing is fascinating. I mean, there's, there's a reason that, you know, little kids love mummies. So Egyptian culture doesn't need any help to be extraordinarily enchanting to most people, I think. So, you know, the first time it hit me, King Tut, the King Tut exhibition, the first one came through 
I think I was probably eight years old, and we went down to Chicago from Minneapolis, where I lived to go to the Field Museum in Chicago to see uh, the artifacts. Um, so that was a good 35 or some years ago. I'm not quite sure what the date was on that on that tour. And it continues to hold that kind of fascination. I mean, I, because of my book, I've been lucky enough to go and see the new sort of glitzed-up King Tut exhibition a couple of times in, in the process of my work. So what did I what did I learn that I hadn't known before? You know, I got into some of the more obscure gods, I guess, and the way that they reflect pretty ordinary human experience, I find charming, I guess is a good word, enchanting, amazing. You know, I like the idea that there is this goddess, Sekhmet, who uh, has, uh, has the intention of... <laughs> she's a lion-headed goddess, and she will destroy the world if she can sober up, which fortunately she never does. Ah. So I like I like that there's an alcoholic god who will be terribly vengeful if he you know can get out of bed, and I am I like the story of Atum. Atum is a crucial god in Egyptian cosmology and in my book, and the idea that he creates the world by masturbating under the soil, and out of that blossom the other gods. Um, these are you know these are stories that are both archetypal and they resonate with humans for centuries, but also. You know, a kid could have made these stories up. And there's something about Egypt which is so magical and foreign and haunting and, you know, canopic jars filled with organs and mummies and all the things that Hollywood has done with those images. And yet at the base of it is something very, I don't want to say it's not primitive, it's something primal, something deeply uh, human that is about things that are deeply pertinent. Who's drunk? Who's getting... Uh, laid, who's able to grow food, who's going to protect us. These are things that, to watch different cultures, ancient Roman culture, ancient Greek culture, ancient Egyptian culture, answer those questions with different projections of our subconscious, these gods, uh, I'm always enchanted by. I remember as a young man, I uh, went to the uh, University of Chicago to their Oriental Museum, uh, I don't know if you've ever been there, uh, but no. it's it's a fascinating jewel that sits on the south side of Chicago. Probably they acquired most of their uh, uh, items in the 20s and 30s, but it has this incredible display of uh, cultures across the spectrum. And when I walk into it, I went back there about two years ago, and I walked in there, it, I, it, I swear to you, I could hear the theme song from Indiana Jones playing in the back of my head. It, it looks right. like it, the building was built in uh, uh, the, the either 1910 or somewhere around there, and it it has this feeling of uh, a place that Indiana Jones would have an office. And it's. I wonder it, where, where did he start his? Uh, where did that movie start? He was teaching somewhere. Did they ever say? I could have sworn it was Chicago, but. I I'm not sure. Uh, I I I thought it's just me. I thought it was the East Coast, but I'll have to check on that. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But in writing a book, uh, and this is a basic uh, question for an author: Do you think that the reader needs to know everything about the main character, or are there some things that you leave back and let the uh, reader try to figure it out on their own? Oh, I think that depends entirely on the book and the writer and. And the one of the beauties of fiction is how varied the answer to that question is. You know, the, the 19th century French novelists used to say, you know, you have to be able to know the character down to their equivalent of their social security number. Uh, and so you get these extremely detailed, rich portraits of what he would wear under what circumstances and what he was thinking and what happened to his mother, every last detail. And then you read Kafka, you know, 30 years later, and the main character is reduced to nothing but an initial K, for example. And you don't know anything about him. You know his job. He's an engineer, and you know he wants to get a job at the castle. And that's all you know about him, and everything that happens at that point is happening to nobody, to a capital letter. Um, And yet, somehow, you're drawn to that story equally. So, personally, for me, it's going to change every, every time I write how much of a character you need to know before the story gets started. But no, you certainly don't need to know everything there is to know about a character. You can know nothing, uh, or you can be given somebody as fully drawn as somebody you know, you've known all your life. I, I've been told that sometimes authors find connections, or they discover connections in writing their book. They didn't know existed when they started to write the book. Uh, 
uh, for instance, you know, did you start on the book and then go, wow, this means that, I didn't know I was going there. Or in other words, while writing the book, you look, you suddenly were surprised that something had risen up from your subconscious and, and suddenly it was, it suddenly you realized that you were making connections that you didn't realize. Or is it all pretty well laid out? In my case, it's the former. No, it, you know, you, I moved from having a plan to throwing the plan away to trying to set a plan based on what I've already written to following that for a while and then throwing it away again and improvising. So um, I'm not a very good planner when I write. The plan seems to be finished just about the same time the book is finished. Uh. Uh, and as a result, a lot of times, you know, I'm, I'm improvising. Today, for whatever reason, I feel like writing about a different character, a different scene, something that isn't part of what I've been doing so far, and maybe later on we'll figure out how it fits together. So when you when you make enough improvised judgments like that, after a while you start to see why you've had all of these improvised judgments that come out of the same head over the same period of months, and it turns out the same preoccupations have been boiling away in that head for those months, and so it isn't terribly surprising that the uh, thematic overtones start to resonate and you start to realize, yeah, what I'm writing about here is not just a guy who goes on an Egyptological dig and things go badly. It turns out what I'm writing about is humans' desire to leave something behind that will make them feel that they're going to live forever. Wow, I've never thought about that before. I don't remember ever thinking about that, but clearly that is what is on my mind. Um, And so, not surprisingly, that motivates this character here, that illuminates this scene there, and that resonates back to who the ancient Egyptians were and what they thought they were doing when they built those extraordinary tombs and mummified their kings. So yes, connections are made without, you you just don't know everything that's going on. And I think one of the challenges as you get older at this game, I'm working on my sixth book now, and and the Egyptologist was my second. One of the challenges is being able to regain that semi-conscious, not unconscious and not conscious, but wonderful blend of semi-conscious feeling of, I know what I'm doing, and wow, I'm totally surprised by what I'm doing. Because I think that's where the magic of writing fiction is. Have you made some public appearances and talked about the Egyptologist? Yeah, several. Have, have, what has been the reaction uh, of the audience's when they tend to be people who just want to hear about a novelist and a novel, uh, you get one reaction. When it tends to be people who know something about Egyptology, it's a different uh, different sort of reaction. Uh, you know, as far as critical reviews go, I was very proud to be reviewed in some archaeology magazines, which is not where most of my books go. And to hear archaeologists and Egyptologists talk about my work as, you know, either plausible or affecting or entertaining uh, it was reviewed by a woman named uh, Barbara Peters, who uh, is a PhD in Egyptology and also a novelist who writes a lot of ancient Egyptian adventures about an archaeologist named Amelia Peabody. Uh, and I was, you know, very happy that she was able to review it on both of those grounds. So I've had the same sort of experience when I give when I give talks. Yeah. I think I saw on the internet that the New York Times covered you uh, while you went looking for a writing desk, and <laughs> I, I I found that fascinating. But you see, you're talking to a guy who not only loves writing desks, but I love pens and I love anything associated with the with the uh, with with the, with the art. And I, I just like to know, uh, uh, did you? I I didn't finish the article, so did you find the desk? And and if there is a desk out there for you, what does it have to have? <laughs> well, that that article was um, something of a fantasy shopping spree. I mean, we looked at, because the Times brought me into all these amazing boutiques I'd never heard of, we looked at desks that uh, were 15000 and 20000 and then finally $60,000. So I did not, in fact, buy one of those, unfortunately. The $60,000 one was made from a single piece of old growth naturally felled by lightning Brazilian rainforest wood. Oh, my um, God. And it was 10 feet long, and then the knot of the tree, the root of it, curled under it naturally to, to make a um, to make one of the pedestals, and then they, with one other small piece of wood, they had the other one. So, and then they polished it to this wonderful marble shine. So if you have $60,000 and a room 
large enough for it. There are lovely desks out there. It sounds uh, like I, it's, it sounds like something the Hobbit would love to write on. But it, it looks like it, like a, exactly like something out of Middle Earth. Um, uh, unfortunately, I write on a plank of you know white uh, plywood from IKEA, um, and I write on copper-topped tables at a cafe, and uh, which is all the glamour I and I get out of out of the job. So, okay. What's next for Arthur Phillips? Uh, I'm working on another book. Not much to say about it quite yet. I'm still in that period of not entirely sure what I'm doing. Um, and I'm writing TV shows, uh, submitting ideas for pilots to the networks, hoping that I can uh, do both, maybe create a TV show and write another novel. Okay, good luck to you, sir. Rob, thank you very much. Very much enjoyed your book. And Thank uh, you. it was a, it was a great read, and uh, I, it's something that I'm prob- I go back to every once in a while because I I sit and I think, did I read that? And I go back and I look at it again, and uh, I rate books by how often I go back to them and, and search through them, and uh, it, you you piqued my interest in, and I I think it's this character development. It was just uh, it was just amazing. Thank you so much, Rob. That's great. I'm really pleased to hear that. Uh, and you, sir, have a good day. You too. Thanks so much for doing this with me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. This concludes Episode 18, Season 3 of Ancient Rome Refocus. Special thanks to NASA, JPL, Steve Martin, and the website Internet Archive at archive.org.